This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Today's conversation is one that will fill you with hope, cause you to examine your own responses to difficult situations, and show you that God does not abandon us even in the midst of our own self-destruction. Today, Robin Fuller is a happily married life coach, mother of three, inspirational speaker in the pro-life movement, and follower of Jesus, among other things. However, in today's episode, we talk about her choice to have an abortion as a young college student. The years she spent wearing masks to cover the pain and maintain the, quote, perfect girl appearance, her long career as a pregnancy center director, and her passion to help ministry leaders finish their roles well. Listen to what Robin shares about her second pregnancy while she was serving as director of a pregnancy center. So I walked into work every day with my sin ever before me. And it's like God took my little face in his hands and he said, Robin, as long as you and I are okay, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. You don't look at them. You look at me. And at that point, I knew I was all in with the Lord and he's the one that got me through. Friends, this conversation is one I honestly don't have words to describe. It is one of my absolute favorites because it is real and vulnerable and a true testimony to the work God does in our lives as we journey with him. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for being here this evening. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Well, Amber, I'm excited and I'm just uh, really thankful for the courage you've had to start this podcast. Oh, thank you. Will you take a minute and introduce yourself, your family, and tell us a little bit about what you do now and what your previous career was that is really a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight? I will do that. Uh, My name is Robin Fuller and I live in beautiful Southern Oregon where it's green, all year round. Okay, so I have to ask really quick, does it really rain that much? Not in Southern Oregon. Okay, see, I did not know that. Not as much. Not as much. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) proceed. (laughs) Anyway, I am married to the love of my life. His name is Steve. We've been married almost 28 years. I have three adult sons. My oldest son is 28. Uh, Yes, there's a story there. Married 28 years. My oldest is 28. um, And you'll hear a little bit about that tonight. I also have a son in heaven that you'll hear a little bit about. And I stepped away in 2018 from a 23-year career as the director of three separate pregnancy center ministries. And because of the life coaching I received that helped me finish my career well, I am now a certified professional life coach working with ministry leaders including pregnancy center directors all around the country and helping them find joy in their ministry leadership and help them lead from a position of strength instead of fear. Yeah. And that's, 
that's a whole nother podcast episode. And I know for anyone listening, we, we were talking earlier about we may need to split this up into two because there's so much to cover there. So we'll see. Um, like I said, that could be a whole nother thing that people need to hear about. Absolutely. Yeah. So take us back to when you were in college. Tell me a little bit about your faith journey up to that point. And then talk to us about that first really life-altering situation when you were in college. Okay. Well, I, I like to tell people I started uh, with my first boyfriend when I was three years old. <laughs> I uh, was raised in a beautiful Christian home with two mm. older sisters, and I think I was born in church. Uh, but at three years old, there were some people who paired me off with this little boy named Glenn, and they thought it was really cute. And something really got inside of me at that time where I really felt like I needed a guy to complete me. And I had a boyfriend from kindergarten all the way through. And if I didn't have one, I was looking. But I remember at five years old, um, praying to ask Jesus into my heart with my dad. And that's uh, vividly in my mind. And I went through school and with all those boyfriends, I had heard about sexual purity and being a virgin. And I set a goal to remain a virgin until I graduate from high school. So I don't know where I missed the piece that uh, the goal was to wait to have sex until you got married. <laughs> but I made my goal. I was very goal oriented. And um, but shortly after I graduated from high school, I lost that virginity. I gave that special gift away. And I stayed with that boyfriend for a while, and I went to school in the Midwest at Oral Roberts University to fulfill a dream of my father. He really wanted one of us to go. And so I went there my sophomore year of college, and then the beginning of my junior year of college, right before I was going to school, my period hadn't started I was a bit panicky and my new roommate said, well, let's just go get tested. So she took me to Planned Parenthood and I had a pregnancy test and it was positive. And I remember they asked me about abortion and I was like, nope, not, not going to happen. So I talked to my boyfriend. He was really smart. I had been valedictorian. And so we were going to get married. Uh, that's just kind of the way it was. And so he told his parents and I remember, I remember calling my mom. And the panicky feeling of that. I grew up in a family where my perception of being in that family was that you were perfect. Mm. And so I was going to break my parents' heart. And when I called my mom, I'll never forget her voice. She said, oh, darling, would you consider having an abortion? And I said, mom, I couldn't do that. I know what that means. And then through my tears, I asked her if she could please tell my daddy because I, I couldn't face him. So I went and told the chaplain of the school. And sure enough, I was asked to leave. I had broken this moral code that was expected and that I had signed. So I got on a Greyhound bus and I traveled across the country all by myself from Oklahoma to California into the arms of my boyfriend. And somehow within a week, I found myself in an abortion clinic in Fresno, California, having an abortion. And I remember laying on that table and just so praying that my boyfriend would come and save me, and he didn't. And I remember waking up, and I remember getting in the car, and he looked at me, and he said, I wish we hadn't done that. Mm. And um, that week was the first week I smoked pot. 
I started drinking. I started smoking cigarettes. I told my family that I'd never been pregnant. I lied to them all and uh, just went on with my life, still going to church. And that really was my reason for the abortion is trying to keep that good girl image mask, right? Mm -hmm. That I didn't want anybody to see. You had told your mother. Yes. But once you went back and said, I never was pregnant, she believed that to be true. I think she knew it wasn't true, but she also didn't know how to talk with me about it. I had been the the rebellious one in the family. Just so that I understand and my listeners understand that she, was she encouraging you to have an abortion or was she just more asking like, is this something you would consider? She was just wondering if it was something I would consider really prayerfully hoping I would say no. Yes. Yeah. Because I know you had said you grew up in a strong Christian home. Um, Yes. But you struggled with wanting to keep the mask on of perfection, correct? Yes, absolutely. Well, what were those months and years like following the abortion? Like, did anyone know besides your boyfriend? Um, Were you dependent upon God during that time? Were you angry with him, scared? You know, to walk us through that. I know you said the week after was really rough, but what were the months and the years after? Well, You know, Amber, I just immediately put all the masks on and Mm -hmm. I continued going to church. I told my family I'd never been pregnant, had just wanted to leave school. And so I sat in church and every time the pastor even mentioned the word abortion, it was like I had my hands over my ears and didn't want to hear anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody really knew. I, I really didn't tell anyone. My boyfriend knew and, um, I just kind of tried to play like I was okay, Mm -hmm. which I think many women do after an abortion. It's, it's really painful to admit what you've done. And even though you might embrace God's forgiveness, it's really difficult to forgive yourself. So I stayed with that boyfriend for a couple of years, but then I eventually fled that relationship into the arms of another man, I think just to forget try to forget what I've done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then when God called me into pregnancy center ministry, it all just kind of came back full force and and hit me in the face. You know, it's not something I could really ignore any longer. So I was really grateful for the social workers that I worked with, and, and they were able to really help walk with me through a healing process. Well, and speaking of ending up in that pregnancy center role, what led you to that place of getting that job, you know, your first role as a pregnancy center director? Well, I had never even heard of pregnancy centers. So um, when a friend of mine came running up to me at church and said, you know, I have a hot potato for you in my hands and God told me to give it to you. I looked at her like she was crazy, and it was a piece of paper. It was a job opening for a pregnancy center director. And, you know, God had told me I was called to work with women and help heal their hurts. I just never thought it was in the area of abortion. And so I said, okay, I want to be obedient. And so I applied. Got the job, and I'm 25, and I'm supervising licensed clinical social workers in their 50s and 60s, and 
Every day I went to work kind of amazed, just asking God to give me what I needed. He had told me I had these gifts of administration. So it was truly a season of relying on him. But I knew that I needed healing from my own abortion experience Mm -hmm. when I attended training on the very first day. And they actually showed a video of an abortion being done as part of our training. And I drove away and I knew I wasn't okay. Mm. And thankfully, these sweet women took me under their wing and they taught me about post-abortion syndrome and they helped me get the healing that I needed. Well, so and everyone that worked there knew that you had had an abortion in your past. Is that correct? Yes. At that point, I was pretty open about what I had done. I mean, it sounds like when I hear you talk about this, that it truly was a God-given job because that just doesn't happen. Number one, (laughs) it doesn't happen that you get hired for a director's position to typically supervise people who are more, maybe not more qualified, but certainly on paper more qualified. Yeah. And then secondly, the fact that they came alongside you and supported you in that is Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Well, and I remember I even went through a season where I was the supervisor. I was the boss for 20 hours a week. And then I did my internship there to learn more about social work. So that would have been a little bit crazy, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, what was some of that post-abortion syndrome? Like, what even is that? Well, you know, it's a a type of post-traumatic stress where sometimes we don't even realize how an experience has impacted us. And I talked directly with women who maybe they would flip their vacuum cleaner on at home and all of a sudden it would transport them back to the sound of the abortion machine Mm. that was turned on. Or even one gal that I talked to who hated the smell of garlic And it wasn't until she started really going through an abortion recovery program that she realized she hated garlic because the physician who performed her abortion, his breath smelled like garlic. Wow. Abortion has impacted women so much so to the point that some women don't even remember they've had an abortion. Wow. The brain is so powerful. Well, at that time, while you were serving as director What were some of the things that you walked through to really experience some recovery? Well, for me, there were some different things that I had to admit. Like I realized that the drug use and the alcohol abuse and the promiscuity that I experienced for a season and the bulimia that I had, that all of those happened after the abortion that I had. And were more than likely symptoms of that experience. And for me, I experienced just an incredible God moment that I see as a true gift where about a year after I started working there, I was driving home and I was listening to this song on a cassette tape from way back then. I'm dating myself. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Um, CDs date us now. (laughs) I know. But this sweet man from the Sacramento area had written this song, and it was a song of a child speaking to his mother from the womb. And I was just listening to this song, and I was driving home, and all of a sudden, I just started sobbing. And the words say, you know, my life is new, I'll soon be born, I know it won't be long, 
I feel so safe, secure, and warm, and yet there's something wrong. And it's this child speaking. And and while I was listening to this song, I had a full-on vision of my child that I had aborted. And this curly red-haired boy came running towards me, Amber, and I knew in that instant that his name was Daniel James. That's the name that God gave to him. And this little boy, about six years old, looked at me and I'm sorry, it's just an amazing emotional experience for me, but he just said, I love you, mommy. Mm. And he said, I forgive you. And I can't wait to see you someday. And the words that he spoke, there is nothing to describe in our human language, the kind of love that I felt. And so that was such a special kiss from the Lord that says, I see you. And I forgive you so much so that now I'm going to allow you to see your son. Wow. That is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. Incredibly powerful. And you ended up, did you write a song as well? I did not write a song, but I sing that song typically when I share my testimony at banquets or at churches and, you know, other pieces to my own healing experience. Every woman has such an individualized story. Another piece that I learned was the day of my abortion, September 3rd, 1983, was my my grandfather's birthday, his 90th birthday, the godly patriarch of our family on his birthday, I ended the life of his 75th great grandchild. I learned that years later. And once again, you know, the the healing from an abortion experience, whether you've had one or whether you've had five, is very tough for women to go through. Yeah. And often years and years, I'm assuming. Yeah, you know, the average, they say, is typically about seven years after an abortion, usually when a woman is now married and she wants to have children. A dear friend of mine had four abortions, and when she finally wanted to have children, she was unable to Mm. because of the scarring. And the statistics are staggering. They actually say that up to 70% of all women who have abortions, um, 70% attend a Protestant or a Catholic church. And so it's for those same reasons of shame and guilt from getting pregnant at maybe an inopportune time. Wow. Well, and I think back to the fact that you were asked to leave your college. Mm-hmm. And I've, I know that obviously it was a moral code that you signed. But I just am curious, was there, was there a process you had to go through for working through that, because I know me, I would just have dealt with some anger. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's something we need to bring to light because. Yes. Yes. So I actually called that that school and they, a lot of Christian schools and universities still have that code. Wow. Very few of them do it well. So that, you know, kind of leads into that next part of my story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, we can move right on into that because this is, I mean, a part of your story that just completely amazes me. Um, Just the opposite response that happened when you faced this next crisis. If you'll go ahead and kind of share with us all about um, what happens next in your story. 
Well, I had been trying to reconcile with this ex-husband and of course nothing was working. And I met this guy named Steve and we kind of started hanging out a little bit. And next thing you know, we, um, after maybe a year or so, we found ourselves in the pregnancy center after hours taking a pregnancy test. Mm. And the test was positive. And here I am, I'm 27 years old. I'm absolutely panicked and petrified again, because here I was living this expected, quote, godly lifestyle, but I was still holding part of myself back from the Lord. Yeah. I wasn't fully living for him. But when I got pregnant this time, I committed to the Lord to be all in. And there's no way I was even going to consider an abortion this time. So what did I get to do? I got to call my mommy. And once again, she said, oh, darling. And they didn't even know who Steve was. So there was some obvious concern there. Yeah. And... Then I prepared to go talk to the 12-member board of directors of this Christian organization, and I was all prepared to leave, and I walked into that board meeting and told them of my situation, that I was pregnant, um, and it wasn't my husband's child, because I was still married. He was not complying with the divorce at that point, and so I um, told the board, and their response blew me away, because they said, if you're not a crisis pregnancy, we don't know who is. And there's no way we could turn our back on you. And they allowed me to stay in the position. And I even received a card in the mail two days later from the board chairman. And he said, I know your parents live far away. So I would like to be a father to you and a grandfather to your child. Wow. Yeah. You talk about grace. This podcast is grace. That board extended grace to me regardless of what the donors or anybody else were saying, they allowed me to stay and you can't hide pregnancy. So (laughs) I walked into work every day with my sin ever before me. And it's like God took my little face in his hands. And he said, Robin, as long as you and I are okay, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. You don't look at them. You look at me. And at that point, I knew I was all in with the Lord, and He's the one that got me through. Well, and isn't that so true of so many of us that we, deep within our heart, we want to be in this relationship with Jesus, but we don't go all in. And that aspect Mm -hmm. of our flesh and our sinful nature, it is just a constant struggle, and God's just asking us to be all in. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I even made a vow to the Lord since I had had these issues with sexual relationships and guys. And, you know, it started when I was three years old. Mm. I committed to the Lord that I would never be alone with a man unless it was my husband or my father. And I have lived according to that. Yeah, from that point forward. Yes. You know, so this happens. You continue to be the director of this crisis pregnancy center. You're still with Steve. Kind of walk us through you know, the commitment that you two made to one another um, Mm -hmm. while you were pregnant and then what happened after that? Well, Steve had told me after I got pregnant, he said, you know, we blew it, but I want you to know that I'm not going to touch you again physically until we get married. Mm. And when he said that is when I knew I could say yes to marrying him. He had asked me and I had told him no my, we finally got my divorce finalized enough 
so that we could get married. And six days before our son was born, I waddled down the aisle <laughs> and I waddled, let me tell you, and into the arms of this man and God had restored our purity yeah. and we got married and we've been married almost 28 years now. And I can see how God just totally blessed that. And one thing that was really interesting is the pastor where we were going to church, we felt was somewhat judgmental of us. And the only man that we could find that would marry us, he counseled us. He was an Episcopal priest um, in Sacramento. And this man gave us grace and married us in his church. And this man was on the board of Planned Parenthood. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, it's like, I know there are people, well, I just know there are people listening that right now their minds are just so blown, you know, how does God intertwine this grace and we can be so judgmental of people and what people decide to do and not do based upon what they believe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can even say I fight that battle regularly to not judge the other person because you don't know what they're walking through mm-hmm. in their life. And only God knows the heart of a man. Yeah, Steve and I even, we were poor as church mice. Uh, he was a shoe salesman at JCPenney. I was the director of this center making $400 a month. Wow. And we were living together. Mm. That's all we could afford, but we were not married. We were not sleeping together. And I'm sure if people had known that, who knows how much more judgment there would have been. God's grace, though, you know? Well, and I have to ask, too, because the the reality is is that God forgives, and I know it, and I believe it. I Mm -hmm. also know and believe that he does work on our hearts and ask us to come to him and ask for forgiveness. And repent of the wrong that we have done. And so what was that like for you? What, I mean, you know, because you're, I I know you have to be struggling through it because you know at this point the difference between, you know, right and wrong or sexual purity, (laughs) all of those things. Absolutely. And it wasn't easy, but every time I tried to to hang my head in shame again, which is what Satan does, right? He tries to beat you up over and over I just felt God say, lift your head, Mm. lift your head. And so um, it was a continual taking those thoughts captive and, and changing. And it was so difficult that one of my sisters didn't even attend my wedding. And was Um, she just angry with you or she just, I I do think like sometimes we have to give even people grace because people just don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I think she wasn't sure what to do. She wasn't sure if I really was a Christian and how could I have done that? And how could I have even gotten pregnant? And I think it was really difficult for her. But that was hard to see someone not there, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so you and Steve, you got married and you had your first son. Mm -hmm. And he was healthy and When did you make the transition? Because eventually you became a director of a different crisis pregnancy center. And so (laughs) what's going on now? What is happened now that you have this son, you're married in your career? What's going on? You know, pretty early on, I lived with a mentality of I want to do this well. I'm very much a person who lives with the value of excellence. 
So I welcomed people in my life. I was always asking people, how do I do this better? How do I do this better? And had my oldest son, and then I got pregnant again. And how do those things happen, right? Then I got pregnant a third time. (laughs) You know, all of a sudden, they were not planned children, none of them. Wow. (laughs) Um, So, you know, at that point, when I got pregnant with my third, I'm like, you know, I need to go home and be with my babies. Yeah. When I was seven and a half months pregnant, I left that position. I was never going back into pro-life work. It is exhausting. It is hard. So I walked away and was an at-home mom for four years, and it was priceless. And then we had the opportunity to move to Southern Oregon and get our sweet little boys out of the growing metropolis and my husband loves to hunt and fish so we made this big move to southern oregon from sacramento is that correct yeah that's about five hours south of where i live now yeah and so that's when you stepped back into being the director of another crisis pregnancy center yeah i was never gonna do it (laughs) Uh, but then of course i told my pastor my new pastor what i had done And next thing you know, I got a call from his secretary and she said, hey, there's this job opening at the pregnancy center up here. And I went, no. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband was so excited. And I went to the interview with my arms crossed and my legs crossed. And I told him, I said, I have every qualification that you need. I've led abortion recovery classes. I have been there myself. I know how to do this. I've worked with boards. I understand nonprofit organizations. And next thing you know, I got the job. And you're like, here I am again, Lord. That's the thing. It's like, don't tell him you're not going to do something. (laughs) Yeah, I tried that. And I was there for over 16 years, Amber. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you've had to have just seen the complete gamut of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you can't share a lot of details about that, but what are some of the biggest, or maybe I should say the most typical people that you see walking through the doors of a crisis pregnancy center? Oh, Amber, I can't even, I can't even begin to tell you the different kinds of people. There is a thought process in America that these poor teenage girls that are having these abortions or getting pregnant. And I can't tell you how many women who were married in their Mm thirties who came in with a crisis pregnancy um, seeking an abortion because she had an affair Mm. and she can't tell her husband or the single mom who's a pillar in her church and active and she's been messing around on the side And now she finds herself pregnant. I will never forget a a young gal who was about 23, who was really active in her church's high school ministry. And they saw her as as one of the leaders and she got pregnant. Mm. And she even started coming to parenting classes. And she came in one Monday with tears streaming down her face and handed a letter to the receptionist that said she had had an abortion at the encouragement of her parents who were elders at that church. Oh gosh. And nobody ever knew. So it happens everywhere from the girl who has no idea who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. um, And she's homeless and she's scared to uh, the woman who just 
has to hide that sin. And our churches are not helping. There's that moral code mentality, even in our churches, where the woman is judged for what she's done. Gosh, and what do we do? You know, I don't, I know that you don't have all the answers, but I'm certain that you've processed it a lot more than I have. I think of that board. What, what were those board members like? They had to have just, I'm, there might, may have been some judgment on their parts, but I did not see it, nor did I feel it. There was an immediate, we are going to help you. We're going to do whatever it takes to help you. And so how do we make that shift in the church from, oh, well, you're not this perfect Christian girl, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't have all the answers, but I do know that we need to change. We need to change something. And I think part of it goes all the way back to even just talking about the issue of sexuality in our churches. The churches and pastors, for the most part, are simply silent. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about the beauty and the joy of a sexual relationship within a marriage between a husband and a wife. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that our Catholic brothers and sisters have gotten right is they view not only marriage as sacred and as a sacrament, inviting God into the process, but mm-hmm. every single time there is a sexual union between a husband and a wife, they believe that God is right there in the midst Mm. and they yield themselves to him and they say, God, and if a child were to result because of this union, we welcome this child. They view sex as this beautiful thing in marriage and they talk about it. Yeah. In our Protestant churches, we don't talk about it. So the world Well, or it's like what you do here is just don't do it. Right. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, is even, I, I didn't grow up in a strong Christian home by any means. And I mean, we were kind of in and out of church, but I just remember what I learned. And maybe it wasn't just what I learned, but what I thought in my head was, this is just wrong. Mm-hmm. And so don't do it. But for a person like me, and honestly, I mean, a large majority of the people out there, when you're told that something is wrong and there's not a whole lot of, conversation or explanation about that, that Mm -hmm. just makes you want to go do it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I obviously did not wait. But the benefits to waiting are so beautiful for those women I know who both they and their husband did wait. And they were able to come together in a healthy relationship. And she was actually prepared to go into marriage. I think the opposite side of sexual purity and abstinence is we tell them, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then we expect these young women and men to step into a marriage and have great sex. Well, unless the shame component is removed from them, I can't tell you how many women I've taken aside before they get married. And I'm like, hey, can I have some serious conversations with you? Because this act is, it's messy. It's not what the movies look like. Mm-hmm. And you need to communicate and you need to talk, right? You yes. I mean, better. kudos to you. Like if I could give you a standing ovation right now, <laughs> I would. Because honestly, as soon as you say that, I have four people who have popped into my mind. I also did not save myself for marriage. My husband did and his brother did. And 
I mean, I will contribute a lot of that to him having a mother and a father who just, particularly his mom, who are just prayer warriors, number one. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm talking about not for everybody else, not to show up in front of the church and be, you know, the perfect person, but just on her knees all the time praying for her kids. That is one thing that you just cannot undervalue. But also, he didn't really ever have that idea that it was you know, bad, but he he didn't know that, oh, I've saved myself this whole time. And then when I get into marriage, maybe my wife's not going to want to do it all the time. Maybe she's Mm -hmm. not, I mean, maybe I'm not going to know how to do this. And so that you're right, that education piece. And then I had two friends from grad school that, I mean, their honeymoon was a disaster. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and you're like because and and it, it's it'd be good for someone to just say, listen, <laughs> that first week is probably not going to be very good. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you this really funny story. A friend of mine, um, on her wedding night, she actually dressed in full pink camo. That's awesome. And she came out of the bathroom to the Mission Impossible theme song. Oh my goodness, that's so funny. And her husband was laughing so hard. So that was a way that she tried to lighten the mood, right? I know, because there's so much pressure. Yeah, there is. And that's what Hollywood has done. Yeah. And then this expectation too of like, well, if you, you know, if you don't do this before you get married, how are you going to know if you're going to like it? And that whole misconception is just like, you know, let's just be honest. The first time anybody is involved in sex, it's not like it's the best time. Yeah. I mean, it's just not. And it's not like the movie show where it's just this blissful thing every single time. It's, it's not reality. It's not. And I mean, that's something that I know you're really passionate about now, too, is just valuing sexual purity. And so mm-hmm. what are some things that you've done with, like you said, those people you've pulled aside or just maybe even in some of your coaching work to really invest and help people to value that? Well, I recently went and was invited to speak in Santa Paula, California to a Catholic church down there. And I was invited to speak on chastity. And I actually did a lot of research on this. Chastity is not a word that's used very often, especially in Protestant circles. But what I learned about that word, if we could just take it back as a society and as Christians, because this word is so beautiful. We live with an idea of chastity our entire life. We remain chaste within marriage, right? We remain committed to Mm -hmm. just our partner and our spouse. And I loved talking with these kids because I believe in the youth in our culture. I believe that they can and they're strong and they have the ability to wait. Now you have to know how to set proper boundaries, but I believe in our kids and I would love to talk with more parents about how do you do this? You just have to start. And it's got to be an ongoing conversation all the time with your kids. How are you protecting your eyes? Pornography is just 
everywhere and it's so prevalent that we have to talk with our kids about what God's design for sex is. And it's like when you look at a hundred dollar bill, the more you look at the real thing, Mm -hmm. then you know how to identify the fake. And if the kids know what God's design for sex is and that it's beautiful and it's good and it's rewarding and it's everything that God has that's good and best and right for us, then when the kids see the cultural view of sex, then they can identify that as a, as a lie and as false. Yeah, and a book that I read last year, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot by Mo Isom is one of the best reads. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just exposes a lot of those lies and mm-hmm. really talks a lot about, I mean, what you just shared. And so many times I've just thought, I don't know that I would have chosen something different, but I do wish someone would have sat me down and said, you know what, this is what sexual purity is. This is what sexual intimacy is. And honestly, as much as you think you're going to enjoy this before marriage, you're going to be wounded and there's going to be a part of you that you can never get back when you give yourself to someone else. Mm-hmm. I know when um before Steve and I got married, when I said that God restored our our purity, he really did. He yeah. removed memories from my mind, so I had no comparisons. I brought no one else into that marriage bed. Um, but that was a divine act of the Lord for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's not everybody's story. No, and some people have, like we talked about earlier, that idea of. You want to be surrendered fully to the Lord, but it's our nature is to hold something back. So that's a continual just going before the Lord and asking him to purify our hearts. Yeah. And, you know, rejecting what culture does with shame and guilt and and getting to that place of realizing it really is just between you and Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so just one more thing on that, like my kids, um, nine, six and three. But my nine-year-old, I mean, I've had the sex talk with him, and we've done it kind of in layers. And so it's interesting because I have so many friends who are like, already? And I'm like, already? I know you think that eight years old is young. Yeah. But y'all, I mean, it's just not. I mean, it is young, but nowadays kids are hearing about all of it from someone else, they say, by like 10 yeah, with the smartphones and everything going on, I would start um I would start probably by 8 or 9 just letting them know, you know, you teach them the concept of mating, right? I grew up on a farm. This right. is part of nature. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing dirty, there's nothing shameful. I think a lot of parents still feel their own shame. Yeah. We told our kids very openly from very young ages that we did not wait. Yeah. Yeah. And that we wanted the best for them. And these are the reasons why. And this is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think we can undervalue communicating with our children. And it's interesting to me how often we think they can't handle something Mm -hmm. when they can handle it better when they're younger. And we just slowly put the layers on it instead of waiting until someone else tells them. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to like dismantle all (laughs) 
of the stuff that someone else told them that you're like, that's not true. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, listen, I'm sorry. I had to tell my kids this morning because I was actually talking to them about the, they're like, who are you interviewing tonight? And so we had a little bit of a conversation about this episode and, you know, it, it was very interesting to just hear what their thoughts are on that. And some people would, you know, my friends are like, I can't even believe all the stuff you talk about with your kids. And I'm like, you know what though, one day they may not choose what I have, what we have talked to them about, but I do at least feel like they might come to us and tell us. Yes. Even if it's other things that they have heard that is different from what has come from us. Mm-hmm. And this is not just sexual conversation. This is any conversation. Yeah. You know, just more of an open dialogue. It's valuable. So anyways, moving on, um, let's, let's just talk about how you came into becoming a life coach. Well, about 10 years ago, I hit a really huge burnout and I was ready to walk away from everything God had called me to do, but I had a real internal struggle because I knew God had called me to stay there and I knew I couldn't leave until he allowed me to leave And so I talked to a fellow pregnancy center director and she said, no, I've got a guy that you need to talk to. And the guy that I talked to was a life coach. And the very first phone call I had with him, I walked away with hope and he pointed me back to my first love, Mm -hmm. to Jesus and helped me determine what is life giving for me? What is sucking the life out of me? How can I do this well? And I was walking with enough humility to say, I want it all. Tell me what I can do different. Tell me what I need to do. And so I started taking personal retreats on his recommendation. I even had a sabbatical at one point. I learned how to rest. Um, Ministry leadership is just exhausting. And it can feel so lonely because as a leader, if you're struggling with internal fears or doubts about what you're doing, you can't go to your board of directors because they're your boss. And you can't go to your staff because you're their boss. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't go to your spouse or your friends or your family because of confidentiality issues. So who do you talk to? You can't really, if you don't need a counselor, Um, that's where a life coach came in. And so I had three different life coaches over the last 10 years, um, before I retired and, and they really saved my life. They helped me when it became time for transition. When I knew God was, was gradually wooing me away. I knew that I wanted to be a life coach. And so that's why I became a life coach. And I fully understand that, nonprofit world of ministry. And that's why I stepped into that. And it's a beautiful process. I've actually recently been called a spiritual chiropractor. That's awesome. (laughs) Giving them their adjustments. Yes, a spiritual adjustment. Well, and, and like you said, I mean, you served as a ministry leader for 23 years. And so Mm -hmm. if there's a ministry leader, you know, listening right now, What is something you would share with them to encourage them to, you know, finish strong? Well, it took me about four years to really finish strong. And when I say finish strong, I mean, have a good and a healthy, successful handoff to your successor, right? The organization is the most important. And to have a healthy handoff, to hand that baton off to the next person takes a lot of humility, 
takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of work with the board. Um, and that's where finding a life coach or someone who can walk alongside of you and help actually plan so you can finish well. Statistics say that up to 90% of ministry leaders do not finish well at that level. They either walk away, burn out, fizzle out, or have a moral failure. And when I heard that rate, I knew that I was going to be part of the 10%. I would do whatever it took to make that happen. Mm, wow. Well, in all likelihood, there is somebody listening to this episode and or, or someone will in the future that has either had an abortion or maybe considering an abortion. What would you like to say to her? You know, I would say if you've had an abortion, that there is hope and healing. If you think that you're okay, but you haven't actually gone through an abortion recovery program, Many pregnancy centers offer these and some churches do as well. I would absolutely ask you to reach out to me or get in touch with Amber and, and she'll get in touch with me and I can help connect you with help because there's always more than the healing that you've experienced on your own. And the hardest part is to be able to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. God's forgiveness is real and um, he'll help you forgive yourself. And for someone, if they're pregnant and they're considering an abortion, I would say you are not alone. You are not alone wherever you are. And there is help for you through a pregnancy center, through your church, or through someone. And so you really can choose life for your child. Well, and if someone does want to get touch in touch with you, Robin, where can we find you? The name of my business is Bloom Coaching, but my website is robinfuller.coach. And on Instagram, I'm at Coach Robin Fuller. I'll make sure that I share those things yeah. in the show notes as well. Well, before we um, get ready to close out, I do want you to just share with our listeners what you have shared with me about a woman who came into your life and told you that you needed to stop acting like a spoiled princess. <laughs> I, through my uh, leadership, I had surrounded myself with women who were prayer warriors. I wanted people praying for and with me personally. And at one of these meetings, there were about seven of us around the table. There was this sweet lady named Denise, and she has since passed. But Denise looked at me and she said, Robin, you don't know your identity in Christ. And I looked at her and, you know, the pride kind of welled up in me. And I just said, what do you mean? I'm a daughter of the king. I am a princess in God's kingdom, right? We hear that all the mm -hmm. time. And she looked right at me and she was angry. And she said, Robin, you need to stop acting like a snotty nosed little princess and getting away with things you know you shouldn't. And you need to step into your role as queen and as the bride of Christ. Mm. And I am still on that journey. This was about 10 years ago that she said this to me. And I spent at least a year trying to figure out what does that look like? And if you've ever watched the show, The Crown, 
how Queen Elizabeth acts so different than her sister, the princess, right? Mm -hmm. She dresses differently. She acts differently. She talks differently. She is different when she is alone. She is different when she's with people. She is a woman with integrity, which means she's always the same person, regardless of who she's with, right? She doesn't have all these masks. And that journey is eventually going to lead to a book because... Mm. I have never heard that from anybody else. I uh, haven't. I mean, in my mind, since you sent it to me, I've kind of been kind of working through that shift. Yeah, because when you picture, like when I pictured the the kingdom of God, whenever that's been said in church, I just heard my pastor say it a couple weeks ago, you know, your sons and daughters of, you know, in the kingdom of God. Well, when I picture the kingdom, I picture the the castle and I picture the pretty grass and the cute little fluffy animals. And I picture myself in this little frilly, sparkly dress. (laughs) And I picture myself falling into a mud puddle and my daddy comes along and he picks me up and he cleans me up and off I go. But I've never pictured the queen. I am the queen. I am the bride of Christ. And so I am called to act different. And what were the sins that I was doing that was so bad? It wasn't anything like I had done in my past, but I had the pride. I had the gossip in the name of a prayer request. Mm. I had, you know, God revealed to me all these things that I was getting away with. And that's convicting. Yeah. Now my word for the year, I don't know if you're someone who asks God, you know, for a word for the year. I started doing this a few years ago. My word this year is preparation And God told me really clearly that I am to live every day with every fruit of the spirit evident in my life. I can't even make it five minutes. I was going to say, (laughs) oh, girl, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Well, and that's why I'm like, really good. How do I how do I do that? I mean, I know I'm supposed to act like a queen and right. You're not wearing a little tiara anymore. You're wearing this big crown with jewels and people are looking to you for answers. And it is a huge mental shift. And that wasn't that long ago for me. And I'm still on this journey of learning. What does it really mean to live sold out for the Lord day in and day out and loving people well and being kind to the person in the car next to me that I want to just yell at them or, you know? Oh, yes. It's it's everything as simple as help me to not honk my horn to... <laughs> you know, help me to have the difficult conversation when someone is being mistreated. And to not be judgmental, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's a journey. And I mean, isn't God just so patient and kind to us that it is a journey? And it is something that when we, you know, I mean, he's so quick to help us see that tomorrow his mercies are new. Mm -hmm. We get to start again. And you're not going to be, you know, perfect immediately. That's why he says he sanctifies us as we come to him. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's a process. He is such a good father, Amber. Oh, yes, he is. Well, we close our show with a few questions. And so I'm going to ask you, um, we all have seasons in our lives where we, we just can't do anything but cling to the grace of God. And I know that we always experience that grace, but there are times when 
I mean, it truly is all we can do. Do you have a season, and maybe it's one we've already talked about, um, where you feel that you really could do nothing except cling to his unmerited favor? That was absolutely when I was walking through that pregnancy. Mm. When I felt, I felt so unworthy, but God's grace showed up so much bigger. Well, and I haven't asked you, and I will before we go on. Does your son know this story? Oh, my kids, my kids have grown up with that story always because as a pregnancy center director, I share I shared my own story of my abortion experience over and over and over. And it was interesting The our wedding picture was just from our necks up, you know, just our yeah. faces yeah. until uh, my oldest son, he was about 10 years old and he said, mom, were you guys married when I was born? Yes, we were. And then the next year he said, what's the date of your anniversary? And I pulled all the pictures out and I showed him all the pictures. And so they were told at the appropriate time what had happened, but they were all told. And now they all know. And I tell them they have a brother in heaven. And yeah. Yeah, that's awesome that they know. Well, the last question is, if you had the opportunity to sit down with your great grandchildren and offer them some wisdom, what's something you'd like to share with them? You know, hands down, it would be how deeply God loves them Mm -hmm. and truly knit them together. I'm not a knitter, but that scripture that says that he knit them together, when you watch someone who knits, it is so personal. It is so intricate. And I would just want them to know how much God loves them. Well, Robin, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and really to just talk to an audience about a topic that is near and dear to the heart of the Lord. Thank you for the opportunity, Amber. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have further questions, please do reach out to me at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber, or you can reach out to Robin. I know that she would love to talk to you, answer any questions, or to connect you with someone who can answer your questions. Also, will you head over to the show notes for links and resources at graceenoughpodcast.com? There you will find quotes from Robin's episodes today. And anything that she mentioned, there will be links in my show notes. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.